lost in the wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I am Carl Stevens, a priest. And I am Daniel Bogard, the rabbi. And today we are just going to launch right in to Exodus chapter 1, doing a Chravuta Bible study. Um, Chravuta, yes, practice at home. Chravuta, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, by by the end of you know all thirty whatever chapters, I might be able to say that word. Uh, um, <laughs> but uh, let's just let's just plunge right in. We're going to be uh, uh, looking at Exodus one this week, uh, and a good reminder to all of us that we're dealing in translation, uh, and so whatever Bible you're picking up. Uh, is going to be a translation. It's going to be an interpretation. So uh, uh, what what translation are you using? I'm using Robert Alter's uh, translation uh, from the Five Books of Moses, his book, which is both the translation and commentary of the Pentateuch. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great, great. Really encourage people to uh, get that one. That's wonderful. Uh, And I am actually, I'm on uh, a really incredible website, safaria.org, S-E-F-A-R-I-A.org, safaria.org. Uh, which, uh, uh, beyond being a, a website that is put together by my high school prom date, uh, uh-huh. is uh, uh, really an incredible gift uh, to the Jewish world. What they did was they took uh, 2,000 years of Jewish conversation, of commentary upon commentary upon commentary, that sort of pearl metaphor we talked about last week, uh, and hyperlinked it all together. Uh, so I'm looking at Exodus one right now in Safaria. It's got the Hebrew, it's got the English. Uh, but when I click on a verse, it will show me all of the various commentaries on that verse, whether we're talking 14th century Italian commentators or second century Babylonian commentaries or contemporary American, uh, commentators. And then it will hyperlink between those commentaries. So, um, It'll show me all the places where a different commentator has referenced a previous commentator. Uh, so it's really an incredible way to uh, get a little lost uh, down the rabbit hole of uh, Jewish thought. <laughs> that is fantastic. Uh, so let's dig in. You want to sure. uh, read here for us? Sure. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each man with his household they came. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And all these persons springing from the loins of Jacob were 70 persons, but Joseph was in Egypt. Uh, so maybe I'll read uh, those names in Hebrew so we can hear what they sound like. Does that yeah. uh, do anything for you? Yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, so Re- Reuven, Shimon, Shimon's actually my middle name, uh, Levi, and Yehuda. Uh, Yisachar, Zevulan, uh, Zvula, Zvula, I can never say that one. Zvulun, excuse me. Uh, Benjamin, uh, Benjamin, Dan, uh, Naftali, God, and Asher. Wow. There is something really lost in the translation. <laughs> yeah, or the right, Anglicization. Right, all of a sudden, it feels like we've moved uh, uh, to Amish country instead of uh, uh, <laughs> uh, Israel when we read them in English, right? Indeed. Uh, so, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about this, uh, just the two of us, but uh, I think one of the interesting things here is that for Jews, we don't read these names as being sort of part of it. Bible stories, uh, but instead as being our history. Uh, and, you know, if you go into a synagogue today, we still have Jews who 
have family histories or family stories about being descendants of one of these people. Uh, my, my my family, in fact, uh, uh, claims descent from the Levites, um, from Levi. And uh, so actually, if you go into a synagogue, when you're reading the Torah, someone gets honored and called up. Uh, and the first reading of the Torah is always reserved for a descendant of the Levites. So this will be a question from complete ignorance. But the, the Levites were the the tribe that the priesthood came out of. Yeah, Atlanta. exactly. So, um, but in modern Judaism, anyone can become a rabbi, right? Like you don't have to be from a particular tribe. Exactly. A rabbi and priest are totally disconnected from each other. Uh, rabbi is actually a term sort of like PhD. It just means teacher. Uh-huh. Uh, it comes from the word rav, uh, which means many. So it's someone who sort of expounds or increases knowledge uh, out there. Uh, whereas a priest is a, a hereditary, it's really a caste system. Uh, they were the ones who, uh, would have dealt with the animal sacrifices in Jerusalem and as a vegetarian and a Levite, I'm not looking forward to, uh, that ever being restored. <laughs> um, okay. So it's, it's an accident that you are, uh, you are a Levite. Um, do other, do other of these, um, I'm referring to them as tribes because uh, that's my understanding that they're the 12 tribes of Israel. But uh, is that a correct understanding, first of all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how we would understand them. You, you know, the only tribes that anyone has any memory of being a part of anymore are the Levites or you're a part of uh, everyone else. Okay. Uh, because the 10 tribes of the north are, of course, lost in the uh, uh, Assyrian destruction, which is, you know, roughly 740s or something BCE. Uh-huh. Um but on, on sort of a, a different note, we really do look at these as our ancestors. And so it's not theological for Jews necessarily, uh, right? I mean, to give you an example, we understand this as being our story. And so there's no, no contradiction between being a Jew and not believing in God. Wow. Um, yeah. it, in fact, we'd have trouble filling our synagogues if uh, <laughs> that was a contradiction. Huh. Huh. And um, being a Jew is not not necessarily an ethnicity like that. That's a false way to think of it. Am I right about that? I think so. You know, some people uh, might disagree with this, but, I, you know, to me, these terms, these ideas, these ways that we group people, uh, these social constructs, religion, race, ethnicity, they're really sort of modern ideas. Right? They, they haven't existed for that long. And Jews have been around for, you know, 3,000 plus years. And so the way that we think of ourselves really is tribal almost, uh, right? Because you, you can't convert to an ethnicity, uh, right? No matter how much I wish I was uh, uh, Italian, I can't just become Italian, though, man, the food is good. Um, uh, it, but... Uh, you can become a Jew. And in that sense, it's a tribe. It's a large family, uh, right? And you can marry into a family. You can be adopted by a family and you're just as much of a part of the family as anyone else. And families are, they're, they're defined in some ways by practices, by, um, norms, by group. I mean, they're not really group decisions, but this is the way we do things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I encounter this text, I encounter it not necessarily theologically, but as family lore, as family history. Huh. Uh, right? Jews are the ones who tell this story. 
Okay, yeah. And that, um, in many ways, it's very different from Christianity. Because although you can convert to Christianity, uh, I would say, in general, when we encounter stories like these, we see them as part of salvation history. So mm-hmm. it's a, a theological idea, this idea that uh, there has been a plan for the restoration of the world. It's God's plan. Um, and that all these events in Scripture and also events in our current lives are uh, stops along the way. But we actually, we know where that plan is going, or at least that is our theological claim, that we we know that this is all part of a long voyage to the restoration of, uh, of a good creation that is missing sin, evil, suffering. And there's certainly Jews who have sort of a Jewish equivalent of that view, uh, but there's nothing normative about that. And there's nothing required about that. It's not like you are a Jew by believing those things or by not believing those things. Uh, in fact, belief is sort of secondary. Okay. That, I mean, it's, it's a pretty large difference. I don't think there'd be any, well, there are probably some Episcopalians who, who are atheistic or agnostic. Uh, in fact, I know some, um, and it, it would be interesting to have some of them as part of this discussion to see whether their understanding of their participation in the community is more uh, Jewish than what I what I would think would be regularly defined as Christian. So I think maybe that's what we need. We should uh, one of these podcasts. Let's invite a uh, atheist Episcopalian and an atheist Jew to uh, join us for a conversation. That would be awesome. That's a great idea. <laughs> okay, we'll make this happen. Uh, okay. And with that, let's dig back into the text. All right. And Joseph died, and all his brothers with him, and all that generation. And the sons of Israel were fruitful, and swarmed, and multiplied, and grew very vast, and the land was filled with them. Actually, there's a Jewish commentator, Rashi, who picks up a a, a tradition that says that what does it mean that they were uh, uh, fertile and multiplied? That uh, Jewish women were giving birth six at a time. Huh. Uh, as, as someone who, uh, has twin daughters, I, I feel really bad for those women. I would imagine. Yeah. yeah. That that would be a, that would be a hard time. No. Uh, although it will come in a little bit later when the, the midwives make this claim that the Hebrew women are just a uh, very, very good at childbirth. Yes. yes actually, <laughs> there's, a, there's another commentary there that says that the, uh, uh, Jewish women gave birth like animals rather than like people. And it means it in a complimentary way. It just doesn't necessarily read as so complimentary today, I think. (laughs) Right. Um, So one other question I have about this and and that'll come up as soon as we move on to the next verse is, is there's this question about time, how much time is passing here? So Mm. you have the Rashi thing, you know, which, which seems to presume a truncated period of time. Of course they need to have a lot of children at once uh, in order for, for them to be fruitful and multiply within a very short amount of time. I've always read this as meaning that a lot of time passes generations and generations. Yeah. That's the Jewish tradition as well. That this is hundreds of years, hundreds of years. Okay. And, uh, I think this will come up, uh, as soon as we get to the next verse. So do you want to read that verse and then, and then we'll stop and talk about it. Uh, a new King arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Uh, one of the uh, most ominous lines in the Torah, right? Right. Um, so it's, uh, 
I mean, I think a, a shot reading, a surface level reading here, uh, seems to say that this is a new king, a new person. Uh, but the commentaries, uh, uh, pick this up. There's uh, this actually comes from the Talmud, from the uh, um, sort of oral tradition of the Jews. Uh, it says a, a new king arose. There's a controversy between two great teachers. One says he was really new and the other says only his decrees were new, uh, implying that the old king was still alive and only that his policies had changed, that he was acting uh, like a new king. Right. So there you would need a truncated understanding of how much time is passing. Or or would you? Or are we saying that Pharaoh is somehow much more long-lived than anyone else? You know, I think one of the interesting things about Jewish commentary and Jewish uh, sort of views of these things is there's not a need to be coherent. Okay. Uh, that there is a sense that there is a truth within the text that is not necessarily a historical truth. So if we break down the meaning of that, so say that this is just uh, a metaphor, whether it's a, a new king or the old king acting in a different way. Um, one of the challenges for this is that is this question of is Pharaoh a actual historical living person or is Pharaoh in some way a symbol or a metaphor for all, uh, dominating power. Mm. Um, and this is a really important question, uh, for us Episcopalians in the diocese of Southern Ohio, as we're looking at the story, because it becomes very easy to name the Pharaohs of our times, particularly at this moment in American history. Um, and to say, uh, when we're talking about Pharaoh, what we're really talking about are domi- dominant, dominating groups, individuals, political figures. Does that, does that track with a Jewish understanding? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I also wonder in a, in a democracy, is Pharaoh the president or is Pharaoh the electorate? And right. There's a real question then. Are we the same nation we were two years ago with a different president uh, in a different electorate? Uh, or is there something inherently different? Is there something new today? Well, and there would be people who would want to say Pharaoh is capitalism. Pharaoh is, you know, or corporate capitalism. Or, you know, you can name Pharaoh is racism. Pharaoh is any number of these um, things which maybe aren't actually about the electoral system per se, but are what uh, what St. Paul would have called principalities and powers, um, these kind of vast dominating systems of thought that we ascribe to without even knowing that we're ascribing to them. They're that powerful and sneaky. Hmm. hmm. I, so I, I see we bring in the next verse here because I think it actually uh, is going to offer some context for us, right? Okay. And he, presumably Pharaoh, said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are much too numerous for us. Let us deal shrewdly with them so that they may not increase. Otherwise, in the event of war, they may join our enemies in fighting against us and rise from the ground. But whether or not we're dealing with a new pharaoh or the same pharaoh with new views, it's clear in this text uh, that it is some sort of ethnic racial anxiety. Right. Uh, uh, that is the newness here, 
I mean, talk about a pattern that has played over and over and over in Jewish history, but also in broad history. Right. Yeah, that's an amazing way to think of it. So this is an an anxiety. Um, You know, the funny thing about that particular verse is we, uh, in Sunday school two weeks ago, uh, we were covering it, and this uh, 11-year-old girl of great genius pointed out, how foolish Pharaoh is here, right? Because if you, if you were to treat all of these people, not only as friends, but kind of invite them into your, into your system, um, then there's no way they would side with your enemies. They would side with you, right? So you have, you have, uh, the potential to become greater and larger, but because of your anxiety, you instead choose to, to enslave, uh, and dominate and, it's just a, it then becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy that things yeah. are going badly. Yeah. The self-defeating nature of bigotry. Exactly. Exactly. So it was delightful to hear that from, from a child to be like, <laughs> you, you know, you are wise. Yeah. We need, we need more of those, those children. <laughs> yeah, um, we sure do. Yeah. Actually there's another, as long as we're bringing in uh, commentaries here, there's a, uh, another commentary also from the Talmud, uh, that says, uh, a rabbis interpret Pharaoh as a person who curses himself, but ascribes his curse to others. Wow. Um, right. What a brutal indictment here, but I, I think goes along with, uh, your 11 year old's commentary. Yeah, that, okay. A person who curses himself, but ascribes his curse to others. That is it in a nutshell. I think. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Wonderful. Um, there is another rabbinic, uh, commentary that you, that you shared with me from, uh, I'm going to again butcher the Hebrew, but Midrash Tanchufa. Okay. You say it again. Tanchuma. I think that was pretty good right there. Oh, great. Okay. Um, and, and in this, uh, when Pharaoh says, let us deal wisely with him, the Midrash says, Pharaoh himself took hold of a basket and shovel. Oh, all who saw Pharaoh with a basket and shovel and working in bricks did likewise. The Jews came too and diligently worked with him all day, and they were strong and brawny. When evening fell, Pharaoh placed taskmasters over them and said, Count how many bricks they made. He then said to the Hebrews, This number you shall deliver to me each and every day, appointing the Egyptian taskmasters over Hebrew officers and the Hebrew officers over the people. So in this, Pharaoh is doing a bait and switch, basically, right? He's saying, come do this work. I'm going to do this work. Let's all work on this together. And as soon as he has everybody working on it together, he says, oh, no, actually, you're going to do the work. And we're going to force you to do the work. And I'm going to sit over here and drink a pina colada. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, it's it's also interesting because I think this is a different direction that these particular rabbis are going in here where they're looking at this through an economic lens. Ah. Um, right. I mean, we've gone from a, uh, sort of, uh, what we might in contemporary parlance call it, a, a racist critique to a classist critique. Uh-huh. Um, expound on that because I'm not quite sure I follow. Well, we're dealing with, uh, a, a slavery here, at least according to this midrash, that isn't fundamentally about racial fear, like the cortex seems to say, but is instead about economic exploitation. Hmm. 
Okay. So it, the Jews, it doesn't really matter that they're Jews here. They just happen to come along and, uh, and, and then it's the Pharaoh jumping in. Yeah. And I think this is one of those places that, uh, secular scholarship can offer us an interesting commentary too, that, uh, uh, you know, one of the very earliest references we can find to something that looks like Jews from, uh, outside of uh, Jewish texts, actually from an Egyptian text, uses a word very similar to uh, Israelites, Ivri, uh, that maybe refers to the Jewish slaves in Egypt, but seems to actually just mean marginalized peoples. Right. Right. Rather than being in an, a particular ethnicity, it becomes simply marginalized people. And doesn't the very word uh, Hebrew, so I've read some scholarship, I don't know how legitimate it is, but this idea that it comes from this word for alien. Um, yeah. yeah, someone who has passed over, exactly. Right, so it could be any group of of alien or alienated people mm-hmm. in that context. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we might actually have here an expansion even though the chapter starts with the 12 tribes, uh, the descendants of, of uh, Israel, they uh, this could be a growing group even now, right? It could be these 12 tribes and then anyone else who is uh, being oppressed, who is alien like them. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And we know this sort of oppression, of course, is one of the clearest ways that identity is created. Uh, right. right. I mean, think about oh, African <laughs> slaves brought to this country. Oh man, what a thought! Right. <laughs> uh, right, African slaves brought to this country weren't one ethnicity. They weren't one language. They weren't one religious tradition. They weren't one anything. They were people from a continent, uh, and yet they came over here, and slavery within a few generations formed a new identity. That is absolutely um, true. Right. I mean, yes. an awful, oppressive identity based on white supremacy, uh, but a new identity nonetheless. Right. Right. And uh, one of the other things I've been reading about uh, Exodus and the African-American experience is, is a reason that this story meant so much to them uh, when they were enslaved is actually when it starts back in Genesis, how does how does Joseph even get to Egypt? Well, he is uh, essentially enslaved by his brothers. He's sold by his brothers. Mm. And this was part of that entire experience mm. of the African slave trade. How did people get to the Americas? Well, they were sold uh, inland by their tribes, by family members, by people who had captured them in war, and then taken to the coast and sold off. So the very experience of becoming a slave, as detailed in Genesis, uh, was also the experience of the African slave trade. <laughs> okay, so they get sold into slavery, they become a new people, um, and this is where we are right now in the Exodus narrative. So let's jump in, back in, verse 11, if you're following along at home. Uh, So they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built garrison cities for Pharaoh, uh, Pithom and Ramses. Uh, But the more they were oppressed, the more they increased and spread out, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. 
the Egyptians ruthlessly imposed upon the Israelites and the various labors they had made them perform. Ruthlessly, they made life bitter for them with harsh labor at mortar and bricks and with all sorts of tasks in the field. The king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, saying, When you deliver the Hebrew women, look at the birth stool. If it is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, fearing God, did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. Okay, so let's talk about these midwives for a moment. Sure. Uh, who are they? What, what does uh, uh, Christian tradition say about them? Well, you know, I think as a diocese, we've just been discovering this. It's really interesting to me that in the last two weeks since we launched this project, I've been in meetings and among other groups of Episcopalians, and this is these two people is are are the ones who keep being brought up. And the thing that keeps being brought up is the fact that they have names and that Pharaoh does not, which I think is a point that that Walter Brueggemann uh, originally made, and which and which we're all kind of latching onto. Um, but this is so. I guess at this moment, as we're kind of really going deeply into this text, so the thing we're discovering with great interest is um, that this. Scripture is already privileging the oppressed because it is naming them and giving them identity, whereas the oppressors are neither named nor given any coherent identity. Hmm. 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 Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking of sort of the emphasis within the uh, – um, you certainly find it in social media uh, after these police killings of young African-American men, uh, this emphasis on say their names. Right, say the names of the men who have been killed rather than those that have killed them. Right, and uh, this may this may seem a little uh, extreme, perhaps, but you know when the, when there's a mass shooting, um, there's a, there's an equal emphasis not to say the killers' names, right? Because we don't want people to emulate glorify, them, yeah. glorify them. Um, so, in a, in a way, we understand even in this moment the power of not giving evil an identity, but giving an identity to the good or the innocent. So, speaking of the good here, I uh, did some digging uh, within Jewish commentaries on these two women, Shifra and Pua. Uh, and the vast majority of commentaries seem to uh, agree that these are Jewish women. Mm-hmm. But there is a lost uh, tradition that we just sort of find references to rather than finding the actual commentary itself, the actual midrash itself, uh, that suggests that these are not Hebrew midwives, but that we should read it as midwives of the Hebrews, that these are Egyptian women, uh, which, you know, at some level makes sense, right? Why, why would Pharaoh trust that two Jewish midwives would kill Jewish children? Right. Yeah. It's a dumb choice on Pharaoh's part. Right. Uh, so I actually think the reading that these are non Jews makes a lot of sense that these are Egyptians, but sort of taking a step backwards, how does that change the ethics of this situation. Well, they then become more like Pharaoh's daughter 
than than like Miriam or Moses's mother a little bit later, right? If if they are not Jews and they are part of the uh, dominant oppressor class who are deciding uh, to work secretly on behalf of the resistance of the oppressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I, I think a more powerful uh, morality, right? When you're uh-huh. when you're standing up for the other rather than just for yourself. And at some risk, too. <laughs> so, some very but, but real risk. But if that is true, it will also interestingly uh, color what, what will come next, because, uh, as we'll see, one of their excuses for why the the Hebrew boys continue to be born is that the, the Hebrew women are just really good at giving birth, and... Um, that by the time the midwives arrive, the babies are already swaddled, and apparently the midwives don't know how to like undo a diaper to check for gender. <laughs> so uh, basically, they they come up with this kind of excuse that is predicated on um, the Hebrews being different from Egyptians, right? So if they are not Hebrews themselves then are they using kind of a racial or racist uh, argument to convince Pharaoh that they're doing their jobs even when they aren't? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Gosh, the, the ethics of this are so complex. Um, but you know, I, I'm thinking of, uh, um, when we have these sorts of resentments, I'm thinking just of our modern day, Right when we have this sense of growing tension and growing division, I think the the natural inclination is to retreat within our own groups, whether they're ethnic groups or religious groups or tribal groups or racial groups or however we do that, uh, right. and to take care of our own. Uh, and yet, these women become a model for something else if they aren't Jews. Right, they they become a model of how we can break Pharaohic power uh, by crossing boundaries, by crossing lines, by uh, Davka doing good for the other uh, at moments when the inclination is to only protect ourselves. Yeah, given that I. I I almost prefer the idea that they're not Jews, right? Um, yeah, I do too. Totally. <laughs> and, and in part, it's because uh, I myself, you know, as a, a white male heterosexual Christian, I am the dominant social group in America right now. Um, and if I refuse to admit that and to own my power, then I am, uh, then I'm lying to myself and kind of can join that um, feeling of victimization, which will mean that nothing changes. But if I accept where I, where I am situated and decide to cross those lines, uh, then I can start to act ethically. I, you know, from my personal life, I was involved, uh, when I lived in Peoria, uh, with pushing back against what I saw as rising Islamophobia Mm -hmm. and got a lot of support from my community until anti-Semitism started rearing its head again, at least openly. And it's interesting how many people who were supportive of it before find it problematic now that there's anti-Semitism out in the open again, that it's not the time to be standing up for others when we have danger. Um, And that's, you know, Shifra and Pua. They're our model. 
Yeah, so you're saying people within the Jewish community were saying, uh, let's, let's no longer worry about advocating for Muslims. We need to advocate for ourselves. Yeah, 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 exactly. I think, so, I don't know if this is true of Judaism, but in Christianity, there's this idea of a theology of scarcity and a theology of abundance. And a theology of scarcity says that there's only so much of things to go around, whether those are material things or, or ethical positions or safety or anything else. And the theology of abundance says we have everything we need. And uh, we'll have everything we need, and we mm. don't need to worry. Um, and what's interesting about that for the story of Exodus is, you know, the, the Joseph comes to power in Egypt essentially because of theology of scarcity. There's going to be a famine. We need to stockpile as much as we possibly can. Um, and what the story then seems to be about is is pharaoh and others clinging to that idea of scarcity right like we are, we have a scarce number of political allies so we need to make sure that they're fine by ostracizing these other people um and the question becomes what if we were to think in terms of a theology of abundance instead in in your context to say uh look there's enough uh advocacy ethical action to go around to protect both Muslims and Jews and anyone else. And we don't have to hold back uh, rather than, oh, there's only so much goodwill to go around and we have to make sure that it's directed at us first yeah. before we think of other people. I, you know, I've never heard that. That's really powerful. That's really powerful. And certainly speaks to how the story begins, right? right. Seven years of famine, seven years of abundance. Right. Huh. It's, it's a very complicated theme, which uh, I think will come up again and again as as we read through Exodus, because once they're out in the desert, uh, this is going to be one of those questions that the, the people keep raising and that God, through Moses, keeps answering with miracles. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, shall we return to the text? Sure. Uh, let's see, where did we stop? I think we're at 17, I think. Okay. Okay, should I read or do you want to read? Go for it. Okay. And the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt uh, had spoken to them, and they let the children live. And the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why did you do this thing and let the children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, For not like the Egyptian women are the Hebrew women, for they are hardy. Before the midwife comes to them, they give birth. I, and this is where the uh, commentary comes in saying that uh, uh, Israelite women are like uh, uh, animals of the field and means it, you know, in a positive sense. But again, I'm, I'm not sure uh, <laughs> it has that same ring today. Yeah. And I um, read in the um, on, on Shifra, um, which you were referencing at the beginning of the podcast, I read from the Babylonian Talmud this really very beautiful story of the Hebrew women uh, giving birth in orchards. And uh, when the Egyptians came to kill them, the ground actually swallowing up the infants until the killers were gone and then sending them back out. Um, uh, so, you know, here in the actual text of Exodus, there's kind of a natural explanation given for why these uh, these infants can't be killed. But um, it, it feels like the Talmud is not shy about offering supernatural explanations as well. 
No, no, almost sort of magical realism, right? It's that the right. uh, these moments break into the natural world. Right, right. Which I, I mean, I just find it beautiful and exciting and, and really, really like it. So, uh, in these things, you know, I think this is an important, uh, an important window into how Jewish texts work, that these things aren't meant to have any coherence with other stories. They exist on their own with their own truth and their own beauty without needing that to be true at any other moment, right? When we're studying the rest of Exodus, there doesn't have to have been that magical moment when we're dealing with other stories that would contradict it. Uh, it, it really just exists in its own bubble of beauty and truth on its own. Did that make sense? It does. Yeah. So it's like, uh, this story spins off, uh, a midrash in the ba- uh, Babylonian Talmud, but, in order to appreciate that midrash, you actually no longer really need this story. You can exactly. go to to that midrash and and sit with it and gain from it, you know, spiritually, theologically, ethically, morally, um, without ever actually referring back to where it came from. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Huh. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I can give you an example. We'll get to this later, but this is one of my favorite midrashim. There's a story that says that uh, Abraham is sitting there with a knife over Isaac, getting ready to kill him, right? Uh, And he drops the knife because the ground starts shaking. Why does the ground shake? It is an earthquake caused by the feet of the Jews who are fleeing from slavery to freedom across the Red Sea that sends these reverberations through time and space, knocking the knife from Abraham's hand. All right, well, let's move on and finish up uh, with verse 20. Do you want to read that, Daniel? Sure. Uh, And God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and increased greatly. Okay, well, that uh, let's... Let's yeah. just ask a question about that. So if these are not Hebrew midwives, um, then the promise that is given to the Israelites is being extended to them. I mean, if they're if they're Hebrews, then it just makes sense. They're all going to do well, right? They're all going to multiply. But is this is this a moment where they are being accepted uh, as belonging to the community of Hebrews, even if they're not Hebrews? Even if they don't, yeah. Or, or are they just getting the blessing here? Let's see. And God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and increased greatly. Yeah, I guess these can be two separate clauses too, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and God dealt well with the midwives. In fact, I've got a semicolon in my translation here. And the people multiplied and increased greatly. Um, so I think we still don't have a solution to our reading, unfortunately. Okay. Okay. It, it'll, it'll be the next verse. I cut you off too soon. So go on and we'll get uh, And because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Oh, interesting. Interesting. So maybe these households are not necessarily like the multiplying of generations, uh, that the Hebrews get. Maybe that just means that now the midwives have become wives have become mothers on their own. Gosh, I've read this hundreds of times. I don't remember this verse at all. Huh? Huh. Yeah. They get their reward. They get their reward. Yeah. Right. In, in particularly if they're not Jewish, you get, uh, uh, sort of yet another, uh, uh, non-Jewish relationship within the Bible, which is sort of uncommon, right? You get Bilam for instance, but sure. Um, Ruth and Naomi. 
Ruth and Naomi, though, that's part of a, a conversion story, right? Actually, Ruth becomes our paradigmatic well, I guess it's convert. Um, and actually, we uh, that's sort of the model for conversion to Judaism, right? It's not uh, a statement of faith. It's saying your people are my people. Where you go, I will go. Huh. Uh, your God is my God. Where you will be buried, I will be. Um, so would another example maybe be like uh, Melchizedek uh, in Genesis? Yeah. Yeah. Someone who is not of the religion of Abraham and yet can bless Abraham. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Nice. Nice. Okay. So these midwives, they're, they're multivalent as we say in the biz. Um, okay. We may as well finish this last verse. Then yeah. Pharaoh charged all his people saying, every boy that is born, you shall throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So who, uh, first of all, who's Pharaoh talking about here? Is it, I mean, we've got the change, right? So all of a sudden we're dealing with everyone. It's not just the midwives. This is going to be mass genocide by the people. Mm-hmm. So not the Egyptians. You think there's a question to that? No, no, no. I guess, I mean, it's not clear. And in, in, I know the, the Midrash picks this up, but it's not clear to me that Pharaoh is only talking about Jewish children here. Ah, Oh, and that's actually the the tradition that Pharaoh charges this with every child. Uh, that really, his, that his solution uh, to the problem of you know sort of wouldn't they just hide the babies, uh, pass them off as Egyptian Whoa. children, is every male child is killed. Whoa, I okay. So that is something that I've never heard before. Uh, I have just been on the working assumption that these are the Israelite children who are being killed. And I guess I make that assumption because when in the next chapter, when Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses in the river, she immediately assumes he's a Hebrew, which leads me to believe that um, it's Hebrews who you would expect to find in the river. Yeah. Yeah, which is, I think, the uh, sort of straightforward read. But to me, this is the beauty of Midrash. Here, I, I pulled it up. I've got it for you here. It's from the Talmud. Uh, it says, uh, he imposed, he being Pharaoh, imposed the same decree upon his own people, said Rabbi Yossi ben Rabbi Hanina. Uh, he made three decrees. So now they're going to do a real close reading and look at the difference in the grammar. Uh, first, he instructed the midwives, quote, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. Then he commanded every Hebrew son that is born, you shall throw him into the river. And finally, Pharaoh commanded all his people, uh, implying that the same decree is upon his people. Wow. Wow. Uh, well, and that does fit with, you know, I'm, again, I'm just doing my literary thing where I'm trying to see how the whole story fits together. And of course, after the, the Nile is turned to blood, um, which is in some ways just a, a making manifest the fact that all these people have been dying in the river. Uh, Pharaoh goes back into his home, ignoring the bloody river, but it does say that the people, the Egyptian people have to dig around the banks to get water, right? So, so at no point is Pharaoh particularly concerned with the welfare of his people. No, no, there's a, it, you know, there's an interesting, there's something to do here, I think, with the nature of genocide, how it starts small, right? It starts just being targeted at small populations. 
right. and then all of a sudden, right, we, whether or not we say that this is a reading uh, where Pharaoh is actually commanding this, the, the Egyptian children be killed, we are seeing an expansion where it is now the everyday people who are involved in the killing. Right. Uh, and then if you take this rabbinic reading one step further, right, at some point it's, at some point it is your own children who you are sacrificing. Yeah. Uh, hmm. Nobody's going to escape this. No one's escaping this. Wow. Okay. Um, and the significance of it being boys rather than girls, is there any, um, Midrashim, any, any rabbinic commentary on why the girls are spared and the boys are not? Uh, yes, all sorts. Let's see. I think I pulled one for us here. This is from Rashi. Pharaoh cared only about the males because his astrologers told him that a son was destined to be born who would save them. Uh, so this becomes a sort of prophetical image that, uh, right. Pharaoh knew that there was this Israelite boy who was coming. Right. And so his solution was to kill all the boys. Well, and that is an exact parallel to um, King Herod massacring the innocents because the Magi had told him that Jesus was going to be born. So, oh, I don't uh, know this story. Okay, hold on. Tell me this. Oh, oh, okay. Well, this is part of the, well, it's kind of after the nativity story. So at the nativity, uh, three wise men from the, from the east, the three kings of Orient who are sun about, um, they travel following a star to visit the infant Jesus. Mm-hmm. And on their way, they stop at King Herod's palace. And he entertains them and asks them what they're doing. And they tell him that we're following the star, which is leading us to the king who has been born. Um, and Herod, for some bizarre reason, doesn't like send spies after them to see where they're going. But after they've gone and seen the infant Jesus and then they've left, Herod freaks out and decides to kill all the male children, all the male babies who are born. And it's called, in tradition, the Massacre of the Innocents. Um, but Jesus and his family have been warned in a dream to escape, and they escape to Egypt. Wow, I have no memory of this. This is, uh, my New Testament professors in college are going to be disappointed at me if they're listening to this, yeah. yeah. Um, wow, yeah, that is a parallel here. Right, and... Um, one interesting thought to me is that uh, if the rabbinic commentaries are being written around the same time as the Gospels in the first century, or, or maybe a little after, um, it, it's, it really could be that these two traditions are just talking to each other from the get-go. In fact, we know they are, but this would be one really interesting example of how they're doing that. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, the... Uh Modern-day rabbis in the Talmud likes to imagine that uh, the rabbis during Jesus' period were sort of powerful and had say and that the king was coming to them for advice. But the reality is we know that uh, the rabbis at that time were really sort of marginal, fringy people mm-hmm. uh, in a marginal, fringy movement. And uh, so all of those marginal, fringy people, whether they were uh, uh, Jesus followers or John the Baptist followers or rabbi followers, uh, were probably hanging out together. Right. And telling each other uh, the same types of stories and sharing yeah. their understanding. Um, well, that, yeah, that's that's really great. And, of course, it's it's even more 
It makes even more sense because the fact is um, that the earliest followers of Jesus were led by people who's, who still considered themselves Jews, who went to the temple to pray all the time, um, who, in fact, never would have thought of themselves as anything other than Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can see. So basically, we're having these two. Jewish moments or movements, these fringy Jewish movements talking to each other <laughs> about, about this story. Uh, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Nice. I like that. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the first chapter of Exodus and to the end of this podcast. Uh, are there any final <laughs> thoughts before? No, we I hope, uh, anyone who's listening is having as much fun as the two of us did. Yeah, absolutely. So lost in the wilderness is produced by Daniel Bogard and Carl Stevens and is made possible by Christchurch cathedral and the diocese of Southern Ohio. Uh, lost in the wilderness is part of Exodus, a DSO big read, which you can learn more about by going to adsobigread.org where I will post show notes. Uh, our theme music and is... make sure to like us on Facebook. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yes, we have a, a Facebook page. Um, our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album All Things Are Being Made New. And Daniel, where can people find you online? I Well, at the Big Rig website, amongst other places. But uh, you can also find me at nojokeproject.org. Great. And you can find me also at the adsobigread.org website, but I also have my own site, which is called prayerbookart.com. Thank you very much, Dan. Yeah, yeah, good. All right, so we will uh, we will be back next week. Have a great week, Daniel. You too. Take care.